0: Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source
1: for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli.
2: What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in for our Best Moments episode of April 20th. 20. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit Group. Dot com. Remember, new shows are posted every Monday and Thursday. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, and RJO Futures. Another busy month for the markets, everybody, and I hope you all traded well and you and your families are doing well while on lockdown. I had a great group of guests that joined me this month, discussing everything from the global macro situation with Ira Harris... Pricing Crude Oil with Samir Madani, Anticipating Trades with Saeed Zaman, Quant Over Discretionary with Cora Reddy, The Rise of ESG Futures with Jeremy Bacon, and last but not least, Day Trading the E-Mini S&P with two of my good friends, Dennis Parmalee and Paul Franco. I clipped out my favorite moments from each of those shows and put them into one episode for you to check out. So without further ado, let me take you right to my favorite moments of April 2020. Let's talk about gold because (laughs) let's face it, you and I really, I don't think we've ever had a show Ira where you and I have not talked about gold. Uh, And I think the last time we talked, it was about the possibilities of us going to war with Iran. Uh, That was pretty short lived as we kind of thought. And and we talked about on here and and you always said, and for years you've been saying this, don't buy gold in anticipation uh, of a war. And, We talked about that, but now things have changed so much, obviously, since then. And just give us a little sense of what you've been trading these days with gold uh, and just in the precious metal space in general.
3: Okay. So when this began to start, this is, it was the beginning, meaning when all the central bank action began to, to really take place. And you can go back and read my blogs and I really, the start date is uh, February 2nd and that's when I, because I took a, I was daughter for a couple weeks and I, but I really started this and getting involved in this discussion and calling I, right away. I called for a 50 basis point cut for the reason was of course a week in the dollar, but I expected the gold to really take off right, right away because this was exactly what I have discussed when we did the show with Ted Telly in 2016 and well before that i've been blogging about this for even in the you know, in 2009 and 10 gold is not an inflation hedge in the classic sense gold is a hedge against central banks losing their credibility and losing control of the fiat currency world that's what it is in my mind and the greater fear was deflation as i've always maintained because central banks will bend over as, and break themselves to prevent deflation from taking hold. So if you think that that is if that is what their end game is, then gold becomes the most qualitative hedge against that. So I expected uh, gold to really take off, as you know, because I, as you again, you brought up the point when they when the United States assassinated uh, Solomon, and people got. I said no, and and, that, and gold did. It had about a a two-hour rally, and then it was over. So it proved my point ever again that geopolitical events don't. But this is not a geopolitical event. This is, of course, exactly what we have discussed with central banks, not really knowing what to do, and again, just doing everything that they possibly can. And I'm not making a statement about whether they're right or wrong. I'm not making that. There's no no judgment call on that. It's just what they're doing because they're try- they are trying to prevent a deflationary spiral from taking hold in the world. Because with all the debt that exists, nothing is worse than a deflationary spiral. If you don't understand the thing I tell you today, understand that a deflationary spiral is anathema and dangerous to a system laden with debt. Take that away and think about it and you'll understand the message, what I'm trying to teach you and and what you, how you have to react to it. But as usual, I failed to understand and I got hurt the first leg of this because the amount of liquidation of assets was overwhelming any sense of fundamentals. You know, that uh, as Dennis Gartman has so famously said for so long, when the whorehouse gets raided, even the panel player gets arrested. So, people who needed to raise cash were liquidating everything. So I would step into the gold market while the gold was even cascading lower. It went all the way down to 1452 from being over 1600 and I kept stepping into the world because I had support levels. And then when it was ready to do its turnaround, as people started to realize, hey, where am I going to go hide out? Where am I going to go hide out? The dollar is not a haven. Yeah, I know. The U.S. system. But- When the central bank is doing everything it can to prevent the deflationary trap from being laid, that's not it. They're printing all of that, so why should I be buying that? So I started, you know, buying gold, and uh, and that which didn't work then became uh, dynamically took place dynamically in my favor. The missing uh, element, and we'll get into that, is silver. Because we saw the gold-silver ratio go up to, I think, 122, when the previous historic high was like 98 ounces of silver to an ounce of gold. We got up to 122, 123. So you, you see that the world is in the throes of the uh, – that gold is always – it's the one precious metal that's always deemed a hedge. And because I think you've had a lot – so many central banks – loading up their gold reserves, uh, that that puts even more upward pressure. And silver is to to have a dual character, which is, of course, it has an industrial base, which is why it outperforms gold when the economies are humming pretty well. And it has a precious metal base, but just not as considered as much on the global scene. So that's been my views. And, you know, the gold struggles here, we, we still have not made all time highs, of course, and it's still but it did close out pretty well for the week, although basically unchanged. So let's talk about last week. With all of this monetization going on in the system, gold still basically only closed unchanged. But there's concerns afoot in the market about whether there's even enough deliverable gold that exists to meet you know, the positions and paper gold. So the market has a lot to chew on here, but I still think gold is going uh, substantially higher as people realize what has taken place here. And that's even with, you know, and God willing, as I would say, we come to some type of uh, scientific basis to to turning uh, from the drastic effects of this uh, virus. And I don't mean just the deaths, but of course the economic impact. But gold will become even more important because do you think the central banks are going to reverse as fast as they jumped into action? Not a chance in not a chance in this world, because now they're saddled with this program for quite a while, regardless, because they'll be fearful about reversing too quickly. So, that's my uh, longer-term view on gold. And again, you have to look at who owns the gold. And I, I actually have in front of me the list of the twenty largest holders of, uh, of gold by country. Uh, United States uh, has, has the most uh, – Austria is at the bottom of the 20. But interestingly enough, the international the IMF is basically in third place following – Germany has the second most. So uh, there are other countries, and China and Russia have been building up their gold reserves because they see this. They have a lot of dollar exposure. And if I was China, as I wrote that one blog, you know, I, that China offered to swap all their treasury bills for Fort Knox, uh, uh, was tongue in cheek, but it's maybe it's not so tongue in cheek because everybody's carrying a lot of, uh, uh, exposure to us dollar assets. And yet we know what the fed is doing here and, and what the fiscal authorities, meaning Congress is doing. So, uh, do you how long do you really want to hold on to dollars? Will be the question, and the Fed would actually like that. So,
2: listening to you, it sounds to me as though gold is just bullish right now. There's just there's nothing in the short term that you see, or even in the medium to potentially even long term, that would get you away from buying dips in
3: gold. Yeah, right. I, you know, but again, always location with me because I'm not just throwing darts against it. No, yes. I have to find good location. And I like corrections because I'm still trading it. You know, you can't sit there. This this market has told you everything is only a trade right now. I, I'm thinking more long term as to where meaning I'm thinking out a year, a year and a half. How, you know how because I always look at end games. How do you w- meaning an exit strategy? Tell me what the extra strategy is, and I'll have a, and then I can, you know, have a much better handle on the on the end game. So that, that's what I'm I'm looking at. They're doing a lot. They're they're throwing all caution to the wind. And as I say, there are no rules. The Fed is bending as many rules as possible. Under uh, I'm going to get wonky, but. Uh, uh, Article 13, Section 3 of the Federal Reserve Act. You can read it. And and they're, you know, buying corporate debt. And and they'll eventually basically <laughs> do, as they, as Draghi famously said, whatever it takes. Well, that's kind of what they have to put on, whatever it takes. And, of course, you have Congress that just passed a $2 trillion stimulus or more, and they're already talking about the next one. So, you know what? Don't, there, there is nothing going on but what in their mind is salvaging the system. And, and make no mistake about it, that's the language. They're salvaging the system. They're preventing a a uh, deflationary spiral, which will devastate the system because of all the debt that exists. There's nothing more than they would love than six, seven, eight, nine, 10% inflation right now. You know, everybody talks about it. There's nothing more because that would minimize and lessen the impact of debt. Nothing wipes out debt better than inflation, by the way. Because if I'm earning, if my prices go up, my debt costs don't go up. You know, if, I'm, if I have a 10 year loan, you know, locked in at 3%, but all of a sudden prices start to rise, I'm paying you back with cheaper dollars. The emphasis on cheaper dollars. The Fed wants a cheaper dollar to help stabilize the global system. Can't get away from it.
2: A lot of questions I have for you. Um, I,
3: I want to talk mm-hmm. about
2: a couple of things first. I want to I want to go to where the fundamentals were prior to coronavirus, and then yeah. take us through how we've gotten to where we are now, where I hear things, and I don't know how much of this is true or not. I mean, you hear a lot of things that, that probably aren't true, but they're saying that there's just so much oil out there that they're just just sitting in ships in the sea. They have nowhere to store it. So just talk to us about where we were prior to COVID and, and, and take us through to where we are now on the fundamental side of things.
4: Right. So I had a forecast uh, for the end of this year, uh, that I w- was a part of a list here on Twitter, um, you know, all these different uh, analysts and so on who threw their number. And mine, I think, was something like $74 Brent for end of uh, this year. I think we can safely kiss that goodbye. And if uh, Brent or WTI uh, managed to hold the uh, head above 35, we're in a very good uh, end of the year, I would say. 35 to 40 would be like, you know... A treat right now, but um, we were doing fairly well, I would say, and the fact that um, Libya lost over ninety percent of their oil production, that actually uh, helps obviously the oil price now, Libya is still down they are under one hundred thousand barrels a day from the one point two million, so there 's a danger, of course, that if they do decide to come back online right now, which i don 't think will happen, then of course. Um, that won't help the price at all. It will end up in the teens for sure. But I'm monitoring it every day and I don't see any activity there. Uh, So I think all in all, things were going fairly well. Um, And uh, you had prior to that, you had people talking about uh, oil going over 100, some were even saying 300. And I never bought that at all. I think the best place for oil is in the mid 70s, honestly. Uh, Short of that, I think what we need to do as a, as a planet is to cut down on consumption because if the, the market can still be strong and bullish even if you cut down, let's say, a quarter of global consumption. It, sa- it sounds like a, like a big thing to do. But when you look at it, there's so much wasted fuel every day. Look at all these flights. Why are we flying? We're just flying for the sake of, uh, you know, collecting miles. You know, I'm talking about business. Uh, travelers uh, going to official part, you know, company parties and so on. There's not really anything, um, anything you really gain out of these trips that you can't do, for instance, over a Skype call. And I do all my uh, meetings now online and, and it's so efficient and it costs nothing except an hour of your time. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes. We're going to see a lot more remote working. Uh, people who have been working from home now for, for say a month, I think their bosses, with with the fact that they've lost so much money and and all this, uh, you know, all business. I think in general people are going to start looking at when they when they when they uh, restructure the businesses that if they can see that their employees are working from home more instead and save on, for instance, um, uh, real estate. So um, we were doing well, fairly well. Um, And now we have to just adjust with the times, I think. And the 40 could be the new 60, uh, for all we know. Uh, But I think the price does have good potential in the future if we actually cut down on consumption. Because the thing is that you have demand going down and your supply going up. Now, these two, they have to trail together. Historically, they've always trailed together quite close you can still have a very bullish market at 75 million barrels per day in demand if you supply 74 million barrels per day instead. See what I mean? So now we're in a situation where we have maybe 75 million barrels in demand, but we have 100 million plus in, in supply. So we need to bring that, those two together. If you can't do much about supply, then you can do something about demand. And if you can't do anything about demand, then you have to do something about supply.
2: So how much prior to COVID was being pumped per day?
4: Uh, Globally, we're talking about around 100 million barrels per day.
2: Around 100 million. And where are we currently?
4: Currently, it's probably a little bit higher, uh, maybe 102 right now.
2: And consumption-wise, where are we today? Or then versus today?
4: Consumption, yeah. So consumption-wise, we were also trailing around there. Uh, maybe 99 to 100. And now we are probably in the mid-70s.
2: So ultimately, Sam, I'm wondering, so just hearing you and what you're saying, to me, it still sounds as though uh, the supply is still well above where the demand is. And I agree with you in a lot of what you had said. I think so many more businesses are going to start using Skype, at least for the remainder of this year, most likely. Who knows what the future holds beyond that. Definitely. But mm. in the short term, we have this supply-demand issue in crude oil that, and I know that you said that you were bullish at $20, you bought the fund, we're seeing a little bit of a bounce, we've got OPEC mm. coming up. Mm. Uh, where do you see it going from here? How are we going to get that balance between supply and demand?
4: Right, so one thing I want to, touch on is the demand topic. Now, demand is actually comprised of two things. One is consumption. So that's, that's the, you know, the gasoline at the pumps and so on. The other is actual storage. So a lot of oil is just being bought for the sake of relocating to storage uh, because it, it rises in value. Therefore, it's worth a trade in the future, uh, contango. And so um, what we have today is very low Consumption and it's not down 25 percent. It's probably down 75 percent. So, so uh, the actual demand might be down only 25, but consumption is even further. And you can see it for yourself. Just walk out on the street, and you'll see it's empty. There's no there's no traffic at all in, in many of the cities around the world. Most I would say. So, uh, the refining situation is what's causing this. You have a lot of uh, refineries that just aren't processing enough crude right now and so it just goes into inventory and that's how we have these builds so for instance the eia report uh, last week it showed a further drop in refining under under 15 million barrels per day and that caused this massive build what was it 13 million barrels in crude and so we're going to be seeing a lot of that going forth and uh, once we see the refinery runs increasing it will be as a result of the fact that these lockdowns are, are gradually uh, fading away people are moving about again and so on um, we have to see what each government decides around the world on how to do that now we look at china i'm, I'm following it uh, very closely on a daily basis to see how their traffic is doing and i can tell you at large that uh, they have managed to uh, regain a lot of um, uh, productivity uh, which was lost due to the uh, coronavirus uh, they were down two-thirds at least uh, when it happened. And now they've come back to uh, two-thirds. So, so they've, they've risen quite a lot. But I don't think that they will go up to 100% again uh, year on year. So uh, because of the fact that if they are overproducing product or whatever, and there's lack of demand for it worldwide, then that, they'll be just shooting themselves in the foot. So they're going to hold it between, say, 55 and 66%. Uh, productivity, uh, uh, you know, throughout the country. So um, I think that's that's what's going on, and we're gonna have a lot of uh, storage buildup if if this um, deal does not go through, and because currently there is still a lot of vacancy. Now you're hearing in the media that everything is just full. Now actually it's fully booked. It's not physically full. It's just fully booked. And those bookings can be canceled based on uh, this deal going through. And if, for instance, Saudi has made some bookings which cost some money and they're going to have to uh, pay some cancellation fees, then they're going to probably have to do that for all we know. Same thing with the tankers and so on. Now, if this deal does not go through and we see a lot of oil enter the market, the best play would be not just shorting oil because i do not believe it's wise to short oil from 20 dollars. i mean 20 to zero there's not much space you know because a little tick one dollar up and you're, you're you're in a serious uh, mess no instead the best thing probably would be to go into tanker stocks instead the the tanker companies that are pushing the crude oil because the daily rates so the the, the fee cost to, to ship the, the actual oil that's it's pretty much, I would say, it's a Bitcoin right now. It's just been going up and down tremendously, but now because of the fact that this whole uh, topic of flooding oil has happened, it's held very well. So it's it's a very high. It's in the six-digit range uh, per day. So over a hundred thousand, sometimes two hundred thousand uh, dollars a day, from normally what used to be like twenty thousand dollars a day. So it's quite lucrative uh, to get into tanker stocks if this deal does not work out. And so there's going to be a high demand for VLCCs, the tankers that I track, the very large crude carriers. And what I think will happen is that uh, Saudi Arabia will, will book up every single last one they can get hold of uh, because they're going to be packing so many of them with uh, with oil and they'll be shipping as much as they can to whoever can buy and wants to buy because they have the storage space to take it in. Now, one thing I do fear, however, is uh, any hawkish response by the White House uh, by imposing tariffs on Saudi and Russian oil. And Saudi oil I'm more concerned about because the fact that uh, there is a deficit in the trade uh, balance, which is actually in Saudi Arabia's favor, uh, not the U.S.'s. So that's one thing. They'll say, hey, we're buying all these weapons and you're doing this to us, for instance. Uh, because Saudi doesn't ship much oil to um, to U- U.S. anymore. It used to uh, ship over a million barrels a day up until three years ago. Now it's less than half that, around 400,000 a day. So it's not it's not much. Now what can happen is, what I'm afraid that will happen is if they impose this tariff uh, on imports Saudi will retaliate first thing they'll do is they will flood uh, the US refiners with cheap oil because it's a free market nobody's got to be a patriot uh, refiners can buy uh, whatever oil they, they, they that suits their, their books and if they see that it's much cheaper from us uh, from Saudi Arabia than it is from USA then that's what they'll probably end up taking and we've seen that in 2016 There was a lot of Saudi oil that came in, just flooded the market, and they'd make it cheap. And and the other thing that they'll do is they'll book up every single last tanker that they can get hold of in order to cut off U.S. exports. So they put a stranglehold on U.S. exports, and that means that those 3 million barrels per day or 21 million barrels per week that the U.S. normally exports, they just won't move. They'll stop there. And that means that storage will rise even faster. And so U.S. oil producers, you'll, they'll be knocked out one by one by one every single day. And so that's what I fear uh, will happen. So I think we need to find a balance, a geopolitical balance or market balance, whatever you want to call it. We just need to find equilibrium across this whole market. And I think that's why I also believe that, that there will be a deal. Uh, I think everyone wants to maintain good relations uh, Russia, say what you want between US and, and, and Russia, it doesn't matter too much. Uh, all this talk about uh, US uh, maybe lifting sanctions on Russia if they, if they uh, work on this deal, I don't think that's of any interest to Mr. Putin. Uh, he, he's never cared too much about sanctions at all. Uh, we see that daily with Venezuelan oil that's being moved. So I think a deal is likely in the works. Uh, and I think that's also why Saudi and, and Russia have been patient so far this week, saying that they'll wait for the U.S. to do something. And I think right now today was that signal that the EIA uh, put out their short-term energy outlooks showing that uh, there will be a natural decline in production throughout the year.
2: Hey, everybody. A quick pause here to talk about FTSE Russell. They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 index is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 index futures contract, symbol R-T-Y. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit footsyrussell.com. Trader SZ, welcome back to the show.
5: Thanks for having me on, Anthony,
2: again. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you back, and I wanted to have you back on the show today because just the other day I put out a video called The Flow of Trading, and in that video I talked about mindset, preparation, anticipation, and execution, and I was really stressing a lot about anticipation, what we do after we prepare while we're waiting to execute a trade, and I was going through some tweets just the other day when I was having a little wine out on my patio, and, and I saw that you had put a tweet out, and I actually clicked on your profile. And I hadn't been to your home Twitter page in a while, and at the top it says Plan, and then in a big white box it says Waiting. This is where you screwed up, and then Trigger. And I just started cracking up. I'm like, you know what? I have to ask. Ask. See if he'll come back on the show uh, to chat with me because I just don't think we talk about anticipation enough. Uh, you know, we all talk about preparation all the time. Everybody's talking about how they're going to prepare for a trade, but we don't talk about that phase where we're anticipating a trade, where a lot of traders tend to get in, in, in a little bit of trouble during that phase. So before we get into all of the phases, I want to talk about uh, mindset, preparation, anticipation, and execution. Let's start with mindset. What is your mindset before you even get into a trade? Talk to us about your rules, your instincts, just things that go through your head before you begin to even prepare.
5: <clears throat> what I see? I mean, I think – stuff like that usually comes as you mature as a trader to, down the line you know when you first start out it's always the charts all about the charts the entry where do i get in but you know your entries and your, your trading is nothing or going to be rubbish without proper planning and for me i learned the hard way obviously as most do but yeah i mean with the entries and stuff i mean that's just rinse and repeat you know your strategy you know your strategy but it's when to use that strategy and when not to use it so that's where you know now years down the line a lot of my work and the hard part or what i consider real trading is the planning planning and planning and waiting so unless you have a clear plan you're gonna mess up so having a clear plan ahead and then actually following that plan it's easier said than done isn't it like you know yeah i've got the setup but then that waiting period where tr- wait for that trigger. That's where, you know, that's where I think most fail.
2: So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that is where most traders fail because as traders, we always think we see edges. So we end up stepping in, even though it's not according to our plan and we are all guilty of it. But I want, I want to get into that here in a little bit, but what I, what I want to start off with is really the mindset. Do you have a specific set of rules And I'm not talking about rules for your strategy. I'm talking about rules for your trading.
5: I mean, it's going to sound a bit silly to some, but you know, every time I sit at my desk before I even do it, there's like a checklist I have. And that, um, little flow chart thing you've seen, that's probably right at the top. And it's something simple. It's nothing, uh, you know, complicated, but you're not reminding yourself, physically looking at it, reading it. It just makes it sink in better. So, you know, without proper planning, I don't know how you can actually trade. So these are the sort of rules I have. So one of them is like, you know, I'm not feeling well. You know, sometimes you know it's it's amazing how when you're not feeling well, that's gonna affect your you know your clarity of thought. And one little mistake in the markets, markets ruthless. You got no second chance for that trade anyway. So I love my focus now is the clarity of thought. You know, proper proper planning not rushing in. So one way I've overcome is think slow in the sense where, you know, take your time. But sometimes when I used to look at the charts, it just I used to be really fast. Like, okay, um, but that's maybe because I want to be in the trade. But if I step back I'd be, okay, is it really there? Is the, pla- is the, is the setup I want there? So if that makes sense.
2: No, it does. And I love how you said that you search for clarity and you, you try to think slow. I think those things are very important for a trader before they begin to trade for the day, before they even begin to prepare, as we're talking about right now. But easier said than done, right? Uh, How do you get yourself into that mindset? Do you meditate? What do you do to, to get into that zone?
5: Well, one way is past experience. It hurts when I take a loss for silly reasons. And when you keep repeating it, you're going to ask yourself, what am I doing? Am I going to keep doing the same thing again and again and again? Because you're not getting anywhere if you carry on. So another rule I do is, you know, sometimes you have a setup, right? It it comes to you. So the way I say is, let the setup come to me. When I feel like it's ready, then you can just see that's a high probability setup. But otherwise, what I used to do was, I could talk myself into any trade, open a chart and talk myself into it, even if it's not there. But letting it come to you is a whole different game the way I see it. So when I see everything line up, then I know, okay, that's a clear setup. Instead of chasing it, I let it come to me. So that's that's the way I tackle it. And that may mean waiting. But so what? If you have to wait, you have to wait. You're in here for the long game. There's no rush. And another thing is like fear of missing out. So sometimes the way I handle it is, and this is just mindset, you know, little things I think... Uh, view the market as for example say if i've got a trade um lining up and i say oh i don't know but before i just enter it with with that doubt but then i say okay there's going to be another chance to get on board and if it confirms my idea then getting on board later on is actually a higher probability play so it's like a double confirmation so that means i may be getting on later but i'm getting on with the probabilities in my favor so that makes me remove that formal and allows me to wait then Instead of feeling, oh, I missed it. uh, You
2: know what I mean? Yeah, I do, because preparation is what creates patience. Uh, People want to be patient, they have to know what they're looking for. (laughs) So, speaking of preparation, I'm not sure I know anyone that prepares as much as you. Uh, You know, I follow you (laughs) on your uh, Twitter stream and on your private stream. And I know all traders work hard, we all prepare uh, a lot. And yeah let's face it this is a it's a, if you want to be successful, you have to do a lot of preparation in this business but you really do do a lot of prep for yourself and for other traders. Give us a day of what preparation looks like for you
5: so the way I see i mean I love the charts i post they don't even trigger, but that's fine so the way I do is like it's like a it's like a piece of the jigsaw you know sometimes I post a chart. And people think, oh, I'm buying this. Like, you know, when it speaks, I'm bullish. Well, there's a difference between being bullish and taking trade. Two separate things. You know, SPX, right, I've been bearish for so long since the bottom, like, you know, after the big drop we've had. But none of my shorts have triggered. so I've just been on the sideline, which is okay. I have a more swing trade approach. So I'm okay with that because I know that if it's a swing, like if we a scalp, right, if you miss it, you miss it. But with the swing trade, there's many opportunities to get on board because you've got a big target. So a lot of my phase is just planning. So I always try from the higher time frame downwards um, and just mark out scenarios, you know, many scenarios. Bullish, if I'm wrong, what do I do then? And if I miss the initial entry, how do I get on board? So I'm always marking out different, different plans. And then if everything lines up, then the trigger. So I'll have like, like 10 plans and probably two will trigger. So... That's, I'm okay with that, but that's because with time and experience, it's taught me it's okay to miss it. There will always be the next one. So, yeah, that's what I do. all day: Just planning and planning and planning, always looking at outside of stuff, always focusing on, my, on myself. And this is something that's come with in the past, more recently, past couple of years, just, you know, making sure I'm following my rules. It's, it's not, it's so, for me anyway, it's hard to be strict with the rules because there's so much like, you know, you want to pull the trigger, you want to make the money, but... Breaking the rules when you feel the pain of those silly losses, I don't mind taking a loss, but when you take a loss because of stupid reasons, that's what gets to me more. So if I'm planning, that makes me feel like I'm not just sitting there, if that makes sense, and I'm building um, a solid uh, prob- or higher probability trade idea. So when I do execute, it'll be worth my time. Whereas if I'm just hitting buy, buy, buy all day long, it's just useless.
2: Well, I can tell you this from my own personal experience is that in the beginning of my career, I think one of the biggest reasons why I struggled, it was because I had what a lot of people know of as strategy drift (laughs) because of exactly what you said. Oh, you know, today I'm looking at it on this time frame. Oh, there's a double top. I'm going to sell it. Oh, there's just like I just mentioned, there's all these different things that throughout the day that you screw up your day uh, because you go from one strategy to the next, to the next, to the next. And now... After years of losing, i many years into this now, but I actually had to finally sit down, decide which strategy I wanted to trade, wait for those signals, those setups. So now I'm not as distracted by watching the charts all day because, especially in these busy markets, I mean, I just totally agree with you, Cora. I think for new traders, you have to know exactly what you're looking for and you have to know the stats on it. Uh, and you maybe don't have to go into in depth of stats the way that you do. I think that if you're a discretionary trader that you could still find ways to make money without having, you know, I, I don't think you need to have uh, a, a ton of stats, but you need to understand what you're looking for. And you do need to, to see at least your stats of trading it over a period of time and how you trade a specific setup. So I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about how a setup for you even evolves because, if I know for myself, I looked at the charts first, it's the first thing I ever mm-hmm. did really, and then I knew how at some point I would maybe automate something or how I knew to then look for something uh, to find stats in. How do you get an idea if you're not looking at charts to then develop a quantitative
1: strategy? Uh, so it's mostly, uh, I would say there are tons of uh, material out there uh, on internet. I mean, like uh, you don't need to be uh, creative from the day one, but uh, the most of the stuff, yeah, it's like you borrow from somebody and then you try to tweak your idea because uh, nobody is born creative or nobody is born intelligent. So it's like you read the information on the Internet. Uh, as I said, like uh, there are quite a bit resources. So the resources that I would mention is uh, quantifiable Just is one. Uh, the daily speculations.com, uh, but not the new website, uh, the legacy website, which is basically before 2005. They used to talk a lot about this formation or that formation, things like that. And uh, the first uh, book, uh, which uh, basically I was japped uh, when I read that book, which is uh, Toby Crabel's uh, Opening Range Prayer code. Uh So you basically dwell into information on the internet uh, and then you have like plethora of indicators. Okay. RSI. Now, uh, yeah, you just search RSI. You basically get a code like, okay, RSI formula, so on. So like uh, A equals to B or whatever. And then uh, they give you a code. Like if you just search on the internet, I mean, back 10 years back it might be very difficult, but nowadays it's very easy. So you go to, uh, a website called uh, Quantocracy. He basically tracks uh, about, uh, with, I think, about 100 odd uh, other quant bloggers out there. So now you have ready made information of like about 100 quant uh, trading blogs. Uh, Doc uh, Brett borgeria he writes a lot and he also gives you references to various other blogs out there, whatever it is them, like uh, Quantifiable Edges, Sentiment Trader. Then there's market tells, uh, and then there is uh, a little bit of this uh, reform broker. Uh, He writes, of course, 10 to 20 posts, but out of which I think you might have picked one or two from somewhere. Uh, But I would say like, yeah, you just need to filter. And then uh, you build. uh, So if somebody says uh, um, something like I'm just. Uh, just for an example, I am opening Quantifiable. It you know, just uh, blog. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at his latest post. Did he write anything meaningful or not? I'm not judging. He's writing uh, all the time. He's writing meaningful or not meaningful or whatever. But yeah, he said something like big gap downs in already bad, mar- bad markets. Or this is his quantifiable. Uh, pattern so he wrote something like after closing at five day low yesterday spy gaps down to open greater than three percent below yesterday's close so i'm not looking at that exact idea now that gives me like tens of ideas so like after closing at five day low yeah i could modify this to 20 day low or i could modify this to 10 day low or i could modify this to 100 days low or whatever and then now he says spy gaps down uh, less than three percent of yesterday's close yeah so if not yesterday's close i'm looking at uh yesterday's low or i'm looking at yesterday's open or i'm looking at two days uh, close um or like five days ago close i'm thinking like that so now and that's it i'm like now you launch uh your own parameters so just by looking at this particular one statement uh, you could come out of with quite a bit of ideas so uh, that's how you uh, write your own models. And uh, once you write your models, it's um, all the edges is uh, whatever looking at is okay. And now I have this trading model. My next question is okay, what happens uh, into uh, tomorrow's close? So from today's close to tomorrow's close, if this pattern or this uh, particular conditions occurs, uh, is it going to be uh, how many instances in the past is it like really profitable or not um and then that's how you develop your research so by uh, looking at whatever is uh, i mean this is like i'm uh, like if you're just starting a new career i mean if you're starting on the day one and uh, you understand a little bit of stats and then you want to uh, get some ideas because uh, on the day one nobody i mean like nobody is uh equipped to even model so you read into the internet and then once you read something you could modify it to multiple ways and then you come up with your own ideas so um, yeah so i would say these are the favorite i, I want uh, a few of the resources uh, that are out there on the internet uh, which you could use uh, to come up with your own models or they will try to uh, give you some ideas and then modifying them uh, you could uh, come up with it, your own uh, set of ideas.
2: What I find so interesting about this is is that you don't really need to be creative. Is that you could just go out there, take a, something that catches your eye from, a, like you said, a post you read or a strategy that someone else is trading, like you said, a gap up or a gap down. And then you take that idea, test it, tweak it, and make it yours.
1: Correct, yes.
2: Talk to us about how you do that though okay so let's just say that you found an idea right I'm mm-hmm. somebody listening mm-hmm. to to you and I talk about this, and I go, you know what we've been seeing uh-huh. these gap ups lately, and I actually was some watching some videos on gap ups that uh, uh-huh. uh, investquant actually they've they have been on my show and, and they send me an email. They're like, look, look what happens after a gap up. So I actually had gone to their YouTube channel and watched several of those videos. And, and they give you a percentage of what happens on like this exact type of setup they could put in. If you're above the 200 day blue moving average below it, mm-hmm. all these different things. Sure. I, I guess I'm curious for for you, like, how do you do that? You see something that you like, and then you go, okay, well, how do I go and test this? Walk us through that process.
1: Uh, So what we uh, do is, I mean, let's just take a simple uh, example uh, of uh, S&P. So the SPY, Uh, the simple step is, uh, this is just uh, um, uh, SPY's historical perspective since 2000 or whatever. So your entire gains have come uh in two ways one is like if you buy on a down day and then if you exit next day regardless whether it's up or down um uh, that's where like spy which was at 100 odd levels in 2000 for dividend adjusted uh, which is uh, now at 280 levels or whatever uh, so you got like 180 points of gain uh, all the gains have come from uh, down day or whatever and uh, uh, yeah, so the thing is, yeah, so we look at uh, a few uh, parameters in quantitative. So like, okay, uh, this particular trading setup, so it could be like uh, today is down day by 4%, right? So the market is down 4%. How many times it has occurred? So we look at a history, which is like at least a minimum of five years. Or we also go back to the whole history, which is since 93. That's whenever SPI started. Or you could say uh, till 2000, because till from 2000 to today, uh, you have seen like uh, uh, one, two, three, I think four bear markets. One is uh, the 2000 uh, dot com burst, and then 2008, and a little bit of 2011 as well. You could consider that as a bear market. And 2018, and uh, 2018, it just escaped. But yeah, you could say that's again a little bear market because the market went down 20%. Uh, which is the classic definition, you can always question that and uh, the recent uh, two thousand twenty March one uh, now what we look is uh, we look at a significant uh, sample size. so for us like if you have like one or two uh, trades uh, that's not a significant. So we look at a handful uh, so my cutoff there is at least I look for a thirty trades, so I have a handful of sample size. and then I would say like uh, because most of the times, um the market is uh long uh biased but that's a secondary point okay now this setup uh, is there a 30 instance or not if not then i ignore the setup if there is then i look at okay what has historically happened the next day is it like how many times it's up uh is it up like 20 times uh 20 out of 30 that's like 60 percent uh and then what's my average so if i don't do anything uh my average is like about uh uh, four BIPs on a, a S&P. So if I just buy, if I had bought SPY in uh, Jan 1st, 2000, and if I'm still holding, I would be just getting like about uh, that particular gain, which is like 0.002%. That's like about two by 100 or two BIPs gain every day. And now, by doing this setup, am I getting an edge? Edge could be like 10 times or five times more than just buy and hold. And then um, the overall dollar loss uh, or overall dollar gain. So if I gain by trading this pattern, uh, let's say some $40 is my gain for all the winning trades. And I lost like, let's say, $20 for all the losing trades. So 40 divided by 20, uh, that's like two. So for every $2, for every $1 losing bet, uh, you are making $2. So yes, this is like I do have an edge. And then I go on further look at is it um, is there any uh, couple of trades only making the whole gains? So I remove them because those are lucky trades. So we want to our belief is uh, those lucky trades which have occurred in the past are not going to come in the future. So uh, we remove them and we recalculate all of these uh, stats. And then we look for a uh, some statistical significance test, uh, which in my case uh, we look at. Uh, something called t-test uh, the student t-test and then uh, convert into a significant value which is okay for this t-test of so and so value for so and so number of trades what is my significant p-value so if it is less than 0.005 uh, that means we do have the entire statistical process uh, in place and this trade is Uh, not occurred by a chance or by random stuff or whatever. So there is a significance into it. So you basically can take this forward into either further investigation or probably put in paper trading and then you paper trade for a while and then you put that whole stuff into the live trading. That's how uh, we look when we take a small idea. We test all these parameters. And if uh, it meets all the uh, criteria, whatever we are looking at, uh, the statistical tests, like your win rate or profit factor or uh, T-test, which is a statistical significance test. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's the whole process we go through uh, when we just take a small idea and then uh, we come up with these uh, stats.
2: A question I constantly get is, what platform do I use to trade futures while I use TT? They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now they have integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You can try it now for free at tryttnow.com. So about a month ago, you and I were on a call, and we were just chatting about markets and everything going on. And you said to me, you know what, Anthony, one of the things that's really a powerful trend right now in the futures industry is the growth of ESG futures. And honestly, I wasn't even too familiar with them. Uh, They are environmental, social, and governance futures. They're actually called the E-mini ESG futures. Uh, For those of you that don't know what they are, uh, we're going to talk a lot about them today. So you maybe want to Google them on CME's website. But yeah, so you just said to me, you know, this is just a really powerful trend right now when we're seeing in the industry why do you think this is such a big deal
0: well I think the the futures product itself is a big deal because it's it's indicative of the fact that this concept of ESG as a thing in the investment management community has come of age and it's now real you know, for years, uh, this notion of environmental, social, and governance issues was kind of a secondary concern for investment managers, whether you're, regardless of what you're trading, regardless of your strategy. But I think what we've seen over the course of the last couple of years is that um, the institutional investors and pension funds have grown really big, uh, and, and they have, uh, as part of growing very big, they've also come to a point where they've kind of had to Uh, began to take these issues extremely seriously from the vantage point of an investor. And that's really started to drive uh, a number of different and impactful things, if you will, in the community itself. Um, From a, uh, from the perspective of driving additional value in portfolios uh, to the sort of um, influence they're starting to have on companies themselves to take these ESG and socially responsible and, and impactful Uh, investment ideologies to heart and actually start running their businesses uh, around these principles, or or at least with the principles in mind. Um, That's kind of a winding answer, but um, I like to look at data. I think most of us as traders at heart look at data and and, and appreciate that um, that side of the the world, um, perhaps more than others. But one of the things that we've seen over the course of the last decade and change in this industry is that – You know, really, the capital markets are in the middle of a sea change. So, back in 2006, um, there was a a set of rules and principles that were um, that were that were backed by the United Nations. Actually, they're called the Principles for Responsible Investment, or PRI. And when they were first launched, there were only 63 investment companies or asset owners and asset managers um, with about six and a half trillion dollars in assets under management that actually committed and signed up to sort of. Practice these policies and to back them up and try to drive them forward. Um, What's interesting is that by the summer of 2018, so just a couple of, well, I guess 12 years later, um, the number of signatories that are that that had signed up for this sort of this uh, this PRI set of principles had grown to 1,715 managers uh, and almost $82 trillion in assets under management. So in this 12-year period, we've gone from this, per- this, this sort of point where investment managers kind of think about, thought about, knew about this, this notion of socially responsible impact and um, you know, responsible investment methodology into a world where you know, they've really sort of taken ownership of it and are now leading the charge. Uh, and that's a big deal. That's why we saw in you know in October of last year the CME released the first uh, futures product uh, to be able to trade um, this stuff. Now there, there's also a whole bunch of different equity ETFs that exist now um, that have all been sort of burst over the course of the last couple of years um, because this is a real trend that's not going away anytime soon. That was kind of a long answer, but that's that's sort of the, that's sort of the heart of it.
2: No, it's so interesting to me because it's just not something that I would have thought of as becoming a futures market, you know, and, and hearing mm-hmm. from you, mm-hmm. seeing how big it really is, uh, it's surprising.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of us are surprised by it. Because you know, even, even last year in talking with, with several of our own clients, you know, um, literally last year and talking to some of our own clients, they would say, yeah, ESG, it's a thing. I'm not sure if I care that much yet. I'm not sure how much I need to care. And then, you know, fast forwarding six months, nine months, and those same conversations are now totally different. Right? Um, and they sort of turn on, turn, turn on their head. You know, it's, it's, it's an exciting time and therefore, you know, it's an exciting time to have the product out there to start looking at and,
2: and working with. It's also an interesting time. I think coinciding with COVID-19 because I think that this kind of aligns with it in, in a weird way, right? I feel like the, the the world has changed a bit after COVID-19, I think to say the least we don't know exactly how, but when you look at these futures and you talked about how they were already trending you know, environmental, social, and governance. I just feel like, boy, there's going to be some interesting companies and investments going into this space following COVID-19. I mean, what do you think about that?
0: Oh, I think you're a hundred percent right. Right. I mean I think it's interesting, you know, when you've got, um, when you've got asset managers like, uh, BlackRock, right. And Vanguard and, uh, State Street and the Cal- and CalPERS and, other just massive institutional investors that are going to companies and saying, "Look, with or without COVID, we require—like literally—we are requiring that you run your financial products with ESG in mind, and that you hire analysts, and you train PMs, and you force sort of ESG thinking into your investment process and into your mandate." Um, that alone says big things. But then, when you take a a, a a pandemic like what we what we're experiencing with COVID. Um, and you add that to the mix, I mean, it. it, it on, honestly, on one hand, it makes it uh, absolutely easy, air quotes, easy for, for any business manager um, from a small company to the biggest of the big to embrace these notions of responsibility and governance uh, and um, sort of impactful action as a business. Um, but on the other, uh, I, I think it also opens up new ways for them to, for companies again, regardless of their shape or size to get really creative about how they deploy and ultimately how they market the way that they are, um, you know, living these principles. A few years ago, you know, it wasn't unheard of for a, to, to talk to an executive of a, of a large company, a publicly traded company in one form or another, and have them, you know, tell you that, yes, you wasn't even top of mind. It absolutely is now uh, in a lot of conversations I've been having with other CEOs and software companies and other businesses over the course of the last couple of really weeks now that we've all been um, on a quarantine you know, I'm actually starting to hear um, people talk directly about how their uh, their new internal policies, guidelines, and um, and sort of playbooks for the future of their employees um, are also starting to overlap with some of their ESG policies and things internally too. So I think it's uh, I think COVID's going to have a massive impact for these companies and really give us all another opportunity and excuse to learn more about the the, the principles themselves.
2: What are you guys doing during drawdowns, um, and, and how are you dealing with the stress of just looking at this all day, every day? How are you creating that balance? We'll, we'll start with you, E, first.
6: I think that's a great question, and and I think everyone will answer it differently. Um, my mindset is, first of all, I need a certain amount to just bring in a little income at my age, it's different from the guy that's trying to support kids. He knows he's got college coming, all that. So, what what are we trading for? Is the first and most important part of it. And for me, at my age, uh, with needs that are very simple, um, I try not to overtrade. I try not to make any one day or any one trade that important. I know that I'm going to swing the bat. I know that I'm going to hit some. I know I'm going to miss some. If I'm in a, in a funk where you get a few bad trades in a row, you stop trading. You you never want to get taken out of the game just because you, you revenge trade. So that's the hardest part because we're in lockdown. And even if we weren't those of us who love the business, um, we're passionate about it. And this is our hobby. This is our golf. This is how we do that. So, you know you have to shake it off you have to make sure that you have rules that your account size matters and that the more you take out of it instead of putting in and accumulating the harder it becomes to bounce back because you're just going in that downward spiral so it's like your diet you know where you start to lose a couple pounds and then a couple more come off and and so you need to break that negative thinking where all of a sudden you lose your confidence and I think that's the hardest part so you need to be especially vigilant for the things that are going to undermine you for me you know the time zone that I don't like to trade I tell you every day time for a swim why because I know like Anthony says first of all I'm tired my eyes I get fatigue eye fatigue just sitting there just watching the market making decisions by the end of the day I don't have the same enthusiasm for the trading because I know my odds are going to go down rapidly uh, unless it's, It's time for a contra, late contra, you know, where it's run all day long. It's been squeezing. And and so then maybe I'll come back. If I've had a really good day, I'll just go to the pool early and I'll come back and watch the last 10, 15 minutes uh, when there could be profit taking again. So avoiding the situations, I think, is the key when we know ourselves. Nobody has to tell us. Uh, about ourselves and our trading, we we need to be our own best coach. And and my wife is uh, very helpful that way, where she will say, "Well, do you know what?" Come on, you'll get them tomorrow. That's part of the game is having somebody that you you never hide things from. You, you know, I mean, I account to my wife every day. Uh, that was part of my rules that I will not hide things. I had traders come to me and, and tell me they lost 150 grand trading options and they hadn't told their wife. That was sobering. and And I said to myself, I will never do that. I want my wife to know that I value our relationship enough. And I've done that before, thrown a lot of money away, tons of money away in the real estate business if I had only listened to her. So I know my own weakness. I'm a a gambler at heart. I'm a risk taker. And for me, that's part of it. Is is immediately going into that? Okay, just shut down the operation, just like you did. You take some time off, and then you come back with a, you know, smaller <clears throat> ideas, and get back into it. Uh, and and I'm not one of those to press, anyways. I'm much more conservative at my age. But you know what? We're all going to make mistakes, and that's okay. We're you're never going to get everything right. And as long as you can keep from killing your account, you. you Set that rule so much uh I mean I have it right here on my computer screen i'm looking at it now, I cut my losses maximum blah 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 that's it and once that happens, i'm out of the game and I'll watch, but i won't trade again so that's how I'm dealing with it, Polly uh, <clears throat>
7: you know it, uh, took a lot of key things from him on that, and one of the things I think is important is loss of confidence and uh, um and uh and for some traders, they may or may not have someone that's significant in their life that they can go on and confide with or something. I think the key thing is uh, we have to be honest with ourselves and and also the loss of confidence. That's the key things I was taking from him. And I'll give you an example is three weeks ago, um, and also you have to know when to trade or when, as he says, to take a day off. So three weeks ago, we came in in the Sunday session and the market jumped up. I don't remember where it was, but anyway, it jumped up and i stepped in and shorted and i shorted some more and i shorted some more before you know it it just kept going okay so i ended up staying up all night literally i think i actually got about i think it was 45 minutes or an hour of sleep before i did my webinar at uh uh, 4 a.m eastern but i ended up uh managing the position and by the time the u.s opened uh, and by managing, I was saying this it would go much higher i 'd scalp it short, come back down really going against everything the way that I trade, okay, but anyway, I was managing it by the time the u s open came um, I was uh, close to flat, even though the mark was still much higher because I kept you know just scalping it back and forth back and forth, and then of course, in the u s session, it takes another leg up, so I had a, a pretty good pretty good little loss you know for the day. And I felt really crappy. felt stupid. I was thinking, you know, uh, of course, you know, if I if I'd have gone back to exactly break even or a little bit higher, I guess I would have exited. But of course, I didn't do that, which once again breaking all the rules. Um, And so I ended up taking a pretty good loss. So I ended up I didn't trade for the rest of the day. I think the next day I may have put in a small position. And I came back, not not came back all the way, but I'm saying towards the end of the week. One of the things that helped me do, which once again goes back to what he was saying about confidence, and you don't want to lose your confidence. I went back, I went into the micros, and just just to after I gave myself a, basically a couple of days off to get your get your feet uh, get your you get your put your feet in or get your feet wet to get to start you know going back to the basics to start to see that your trades. Of the way you're supposed to trade, see them work. And as you start to see a few things work, it's the same thing as he mentioned about you know basketball. Same thing, you you know trader. I'm um, a trader. Bat players, you know, they're not hitting any shots. They go, you know, just get some easy shots if you can just you know bank it off the off the backboard or whatever. You start to see things kind of go your way again. And essentially that's what I did. But I broke all the rules, went against exactly what I did. Ended up staying up all night, managing a position almost at break even. And of course, break even wasn't wasn't good enough. I mean, I didn't get there. I was going to have a, a a minor loss that wasn't good enough uh, uh, so i ended up letting it run against me but i've essentially like I said we've all been there and that's why i wanted to go and share the story is that you know we, we've we been in situations where we break our rules um and you end up taking a pretty good loss i think that uh the key thing one has to be something with the gentleman was saying i'm telling, but the, the other guy was saying he can keep the let his wife know about the losses at the very least you have to be honest to yourself and you have to look at yourself and say why did i do that why didn't I you – know, look at yourself introspectively in the sense that say, why didn't I take the trade? At the, I mean, why didn't I exit here at the last year? What was it that kept me? Um, and then be honest with yourself saying, hey, I need to get back to just doing the things right and not do these stupid mistakes. And I think that that's what helps is to get back to the basics. The great thing, once again, I'll emphasize once again, the micros is even if you're new to trading or you're not, those allow you to actually get real real action, if you want to call it, and not get run over. 'Cause so many traders, as I said, we've all been there, we've blown out our accounts, you know, years back. And what promise saying once again, you don't want to get knocked out of the game. So to me, ever since then I've been I, I've I've done real well as far as coming back from that loss from three weeks ago, which broke all my rules. But I gave myself some time off and I, you know, was honest with myself to say, you know, what did you do that for? And once again, like I said, I just try and keep things go back to the basics. Uh, and then from there, once again, use the micros at the time and let start to see, you know, the things go back your way and say, OK, now and try and learn from those lessons. Because once again, if if you don't learn from it, then it didn't do you any good use that because maybe it'll springboard you to much better trading going forward, because you'll always know not to have not to make that kind of a stupid mistake. We'll still make mistakes. But once again, I, I think and to me, I think I'm surprised. Anthony, because I think uh, he reminds me of the stories of you back in the day is I would think you'd be carrying these markets up because lot of times I look at the NAS, I look at the spoos, and I'm like, these are the kind of markets. That if you put on some volume, kaboom, you know what I mean? But And that's what you used to do. So I'm surprised, like I said, I, I would think you'd own these markets. But anyway, nonetheless, getting back, I think that it's key that, like I said, that I try and keep it simple and what I look for is a theme for the day whether it's crude oil's moving in the and that's going to give the markets a boost or maybe the markets are on the bid because of some you know crazy covid story but i just stick to the levels <laughs> but that's what i try and do to help me when i run into this as you said these drawdowns i go back to playing it very 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 simple and uh, give myself some time off
2: love both answers and really going back to for me how i deal how i dealt with the drawdown and actually had my best trade the week after it and it just it just goes to show myself once again that self-awareness i understood what was happening and and i don't think we all talk about as traders rhythm enough and, and you know paulie obviously like i said you've known me for years it's like these markets are typically the markets i do the best in but sometimes you even for myself and i don't care who you are you've been doing this a while Like I said, I just got into a funk. I got into a bad rhythm. And it was one of those things where it just carried over the next day into the next day. And I'm just like, what is going on? And when I started to, you know, I I knew it was happening. I was keeping my losses within check. I, I never had anything happen that was extreme, but it was just you know, death by a thousand cuts. Right. And I just had, <laughs> I had weak hands is basically what was happening to me. You know, I just, because once you get into a funk, you just can't wait to get out is essentially what was happening to me. Trimmer my position, smaller in the winners, bigger in the losers. I can go on and on about this, but I think that for people that when you go through drawdowns for me and how I worked my way through, it was, I really looked forward to the weekend. <laughs> and it was <laughs> w- w- what had happened was I, I sat back and I started to recognize things again. I got, clarity again what was happening i went back to to the basics i think both of you somewhat said that and i looked at the markets and i said look at what you were doing i analyzed my trades and i was just shaking my head at how stupid the mistakes i was making and then going back to how i've dealt with this over the years is think big picture uh you know why are you doing this i love when you said that e i mean i i remember when i first started to do this i i was like i was 21 years old and i thought to myself I need to make money today, even though I didn't realize, you know, 21 years later, here I am. You know, I didn't think about that. And I feel like I'm the same person. I feel my hair still is good. I, it might be a little better now. It's a different, different conversation. But no, it, you know, and I, when you think big picture and when you could slow things down and separate yourself from that bad funk thing you're in in that moment – you will find clarity again. That That's something that I had to figure out at an early age is that, look it, that's one of the hardest things to become a full-time day, day trader is to be able to separate yourself from when you're doing good from when you're doing bad. When you're doing bad, you have to recognize it and not give all your good back so, or, or to the point to where you can't come back and do good again. And right. when you think big picture, short-term results start to come. But when you feel the need – to produce right now you put pressure on yourself that is unnecessary uh and i know uh, some people are saying well i know i need to make money today i need to do this i understand that but in this business you need to find a way to not have that pressure on yourself to have to make money every day because i don't care what any day trader says like i said i've been doing this for 21 years you cannot make money every day. <laughs> It's day you're not going to make money every day you're not going to make money every week so if you once you start buying into that and understanding that and you think big picture you become more self-aware during these moments and you get more in control of them and for me that's why I needed the weekend I needed the time away just getting myself back into thinking clearly again getting myself back in rhythm so for me that's, that's the way I, I, I deal with drawdowns Hey, everybody. I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO Futures. They are a long-standing brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on futuresradioshow.com iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.